0: from the companies that you mentioned that were competing against them. WWE doesn't really have to worry about somebody breathing down their neck and taking away their audience. So for the last few years, there's many cases where Monday Night Raw and SmackDown and the pay-per-views have become nothing more than McMahon family home videos put on television to air grudges. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio. It is June 3rd, 2006. We have a very special edition of Banal of America Audio for you on tap this week. It's been All of America Audio, taking on a pop culture as only we can, with James Gutman, author of World Wrestling Insanity. Before I got into the study of esoterica, I was a student of professional wrestling. I really loved the genre. I became fascinated with the inside workings of the business, and really was fast on my way to becoming an astute wrestling historian in many ways. But, of course, then I discovered the esoteric, and I was dragged into the shadowy underworlds of conspiracy theory and UFOs. But since then, I've always seen the parallels between professional wrestling and the esoteric. Both uh, operate on the fringes of the mainstream. Both operate in secrecy. Each has conspiracy theories whistleblowers and find dedicated researchers to dig into the genre and find out more information for the lay people out there and that is who James Gutman is. He's a fantastic researcher he's a great writer he's got the new book World Wrestling Insanity where he takes a look at the strange state of American professional wrestling today. Many of you may remember wrestling from the last six years ago when it was super huge now not so huge but pretty bizarre. James is going to talk about why it's so bizarre, what's going on, what are the circumstances that lend itself to letting professional wrestling run so wildly out of control. That's what he discusses in World Wrestling Insanity, and that's what we're going to discuss this week here on Banal of America Audio. I want to welcome all the folks who are coming here from James's website, worldwrestlinginsanity.com. If you're a wrestling fan and you are not into conspiracy theory, you are missing out big time, so check out more Been All of America Audio. Also, I obviously want to welcome our longtime time All of America Audio listeners. It's episodes like this and some of the other episodes so far this season that go off the beaten path that help us bring more diverse and fascinating esoteric researchers to the show. So if you're one of those longtime time All of America Audio listeners and you're wringing your hands that I've got a pro-wrestling guest on the show. Trust me, folks, there's a method to my madness. It'll all play out in the end. You're going to enjoy the ride. If you are unfamiliar with James Gutman, here's a little bit about him. James Gutman grew up on Long Island and has been following the wrestling industry for as long as he can remember. His Raw Insanity is one of the Internet's most beloved and controversial weekly wrestling columns. His new wrestling website, worldwrestlinginsanity.com, is fast becoming one of the most popular wrestling resources online. His work has been featured in numerous publications, including London Publishing's Family of Magazines. James is the author of World Wrestling Insanity, one of the best-selling books ever for ECW Press, and the highest-selling wrestling books so far that they've ever had, which is an amazing achievement. And he hosts the weekly audio series Radio Free Insanity every Friday at worldwrestlinginsanity.com, featuring discussion on wrestling news and events, along with interviews with a host of wrestling stars, both present-day performers and legends of the past. His website is worldwrestlinginsanity.com. The book is World Wrestling Insanity. The guest, James Gutman. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll, folks. This interview was conducted on May 30th, 2006. James Gutman on Banal of America Audio. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of Banal of America Audio. James Gutman is the guest. He wrote the book, World Wrestling Insanity. It is about the decline and fall of a family empire, the World Wrestling Entertainment. You may have heard of it. I'm a long-time wrestling fan. I, Full disclosure, I helped James uh, put up his uh, radio show on worldwrestlinginsanity.com, so we're actually kind of friends and stuff. So I said to myself, I want to get James on the show, do a little pop culture-style episode of the All of America Audio. And... As a long-time wrestling fan, I've always seen the parallels between professional wrestling and conspiracy-oriented stuff, and the esoteric, there's a lot of uh, work done in the shadows, if you will, and people are always trying to figure out what's going on, and the wrestling business is notoriously closed off to outsiders, which is pretty much kind of how the conspiracy-oriented people are, and we're trying to figure out what's going on with the behind-closed-doors situation, so you can kind of see the parallels there. And like I said, the guest this week, James Gutman. the book, World Wrestling Insanity. James, welcome to the show. What's going on, Tim? Good to be on, man. All right. uh, Let's talk a little bit first about your background, how you ended up uh, writing a book about professional wrestling.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, when I was younger, I I did a wrestling newsletter. Uh, right out of my uh, my house out here on Long Island. Nothing big. We I was featured in uh, I think Wrestling Eye Magazine, New Wave Wrestling. It was called The Inside Informer. and it was cool because I was about fourteen, so I got a. Oh wow. Yeah, I got some good I got some good interviews with people. I, at the time, I think uh, I interviewed Jim Duggan right after he left WWF the first time. I had interviewed uh, Lou Albano and people like that. So I mean, it was fun, and I, and I always enjoyed writing. And then uh, around the late nineties. Kind of fell out of there. One of the guys that we had known out here, Vince Russo, uh, was doing his radio show out on Long Island. And Vince had gotten kind of picked up with WWF and went there and started writing their shows. So it was kind of crazy in that sense. You know, in a way, I kind of felt like I had missed the boat, like I had stopped writing, and I was, you know, a little upset about it. But, you know, at that point, I was entering college, you know, getting parts of my life together. Sometime after college, uh, I had read The Pro Wrestling Torch was uh, looking for writers to come review their shows and and do a column on the the site. So I had written to the editor. I expressed my interest. And uh, yeah, I just uh, continued to pump it out every week and try to make as many contacts as I can, get my name out there. I started writing for uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine uh, and, and the wrestling and things like that. So it was kind of the situation where I just kept writing and writing and writing until yeah. I was at the point where I felt I was doing good enough that I would really want to go out and try to branch
1: out to a book. Nice, nice. So you like sort of started out slow and then just became a wrestling writer over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, the kind of thing that I'd always wanted to do with I mean, everyone kind of has an idea, I think, deep down, of something that I think they might be pretty good at. And I've always enjoyed writing, even in school. You know, everyone would complain, oh, i got to write a paper, i got to write this. And I used to love writing papers. I wasn't big on tests, but uh, writing papers and writing reports or, or really just trying to look below the surface of where everyone else is looking were, were kind of things that always intrigued me.
1: Yeah. And um We'll talk a little bit about professional wrestling itself, uh, because, like in the book, you sort of talk about how it's hard just to even tell people you're you're you write about professional wrestling. There's a stigma attached to it that, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, helps them remain sort of in the background, but also uh, hurts them in a lot of ways because people sort of don't take them seriously or just crap on them.
0: Oh, well, exactly. I mean, you said in the beginning about the the parallels between. Uh, the conspiracy world and the wrestling world, and I mean I totally agree with you. I think one of the the sad things about both situations is that, like, in the conspiracy world, uh, conspiracies will pop up that, you know, you'll hear about them, and I watch a lot of these documentaries or whatnot, and and I'll say, well, there's so many valid points in there, and there's so much validity to what that person is saying, Uh, and then you tell somebody who is is above it all, so to speak, and really isn't into that, and you say, well, they have this proof and they have that proof. Well, that guy's a nut. And it's like, well, that's that's your only response, and it's the same thing with wrestling. You know, you turn around to people and you say, these people don't have a union. These people are dying. These people are being embarrassed on television. You know, these people are losing money. Their families, uh, you you know, they're going from being on television to being broke or being drug addicts. And they go, well, I don't watch wrestling. Yeah. And you go, what the hell does that have to do with anything, whether or not, you know? Uh, and it's kind of sad in a, situa- in a situation like that because you kind of get the situation that we have now with, with pro wrestling, which is that there is one major company. Uh, there's one major person running the companies, and that person kind of has carte blanche to do as he pleases because there are absolutely no checks and balances anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of wrestling books out there. Um, what made you sort of hone in on, on uh, this particular topic and sort of uh, flesh out the theme of World Wrestling Insanity?
0: Well, one of the things that I wrote the book in, in mind to do was reach out to a new audience. And I, I'm really happy with the way it is, like doing this show here, and, and ECW Press, who's the publisher, have a lot of uh, future reviews and interviews set up with with outlets that are not wrestling-oriented. Yeah. I kind of wrote it in a way that it's an overview of the company to somebody who's never watched professional wrestling or somebody who really has never really understood professional wrestling. But at the same time, I tried to write it in a way that people who do watch wrestling can still learn from it and get things out of it. Uh, I think WWE right now, is I mean obviously they're the most well known company uh, as far as wrestling goes in America you know North America right now, yes. so I wanted to focus on them I don't really like to focus too highly on uh, on independent wrestling just because for the amount of people who go and follow it, it really isn't worth it uh, or if you're gonna write a book or if you're going to write a uh, an online article, I like to try to focus on the bigger uh, you know to, to get yeah. more people. And I thought that with the way WWE has been running for the last few years, it's been kind of peculiar because we've watched it and we followed it as it goes along, and we watch Raw and we watch SmackDown, and we say, well, that's ridiculous, and they did this, and that's ridiculous, and that's ridiculous, but when I sat down to put it all into a book, one after another after another, it really just struck me with how many ridiculous things yeah. <laughs> continuously happen and when you put it all together it uh it stands out, So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on the company I focused on.
1: Yeah. And and sort of like you allude to the the present state of affairs and in, in wrestling in America today. Really uh um for those for people like uh who don't follow it, like you say, um they they last remember it uh, maybe towards the late nineties when it was really big and and that was the boom period. And then subsequently, the two there were three leagues at the time. The two other leagues pretty much went out of business on WWF at the time. It's also confusing. WWF, uh, they put the other two leagues out of business. Then they had to change their name, which never really seemed to stick with the mainstream audience. And for the last five years, uh, they've been the sole owner almost of professional wrestling in America. Yeah. And the result of that is... Uh, uh one family pretty much, this crazy kooky family, the McMahon family, um, owning wrestling and having, as you said, carte blanche over over uh what's going on what do you see on T
0: mm-hmm. Oh, totally. I mean this is an and, and the thing that I definitely want to differentiate for people who don't watch the product is that the complaints aren't what the McMahons are choosing to put on T V. Like my my issue isn't uh you know, well, I don't like the wrestler that they they want to put the world title on. It's not like that. Uh, what's actually happened is since the buyout of WCW, and actually, you know, since the late '90s, the McMahon family became characters on television. The family as a whole, including uh, Stephanie's husband Triple H, who's a performer, and as I say in the book, it's the kind of situation where when you're in a business where everybody's playing characters. And those characters remain their personas throughout the day. It's not like a a TV show where, you know, Mr. Belvedere is just Mr. Belvedere when he's on TV. Uh, It's, you know, Hulk Hogan is always Hulk Hogan. Triple H is always Triple H. So these people, they they develop not only egos, but uh, a failure to kind of separate who they are from who they play on television. And because of that, when they go out there and they they want to portray their characters on TV, they like to look as good as possible. And it really, it changes so much of how the product comes out on television because these people are doing things that aren't consistent with their characters, Uh, they aren't consistent with, you know, logical flow of stories and and on-air segments. If anything, it becomes more or less of of an ego show. And that's what's really happened, free from the companies that you mentioned that were competing against them. WWE doesn't really have to worry about somebody breathing down their neck and taking away their audience, so... For the last few years, there's many cases where Monday Night Raw and SmackDown and the pay-per-views have become nothing more than McMahon family home videos put on
1: television to air grudges. Exactly, exactly. And um, one of the key changes, it seems, in the past few years has been, uh, and it's McMahon-related also, is uh, Stephanie McMahon took over the WWE writing staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've always sort of noticed, and maybe you can speak to this, that there's a sort of a paradox has gone on where WWE's programming. Um, it used to be, it was a wrestling show, and now it's more sort of a show about a wrestling company, Uh and it seems that's a result of them bringing in these outside writers who don't understand, uh, professional wrestling, they're Hollywood writers, and it's producing a lot of more grotesque storylines and, uh, contradictory type storylines where they reveal the show as a show, but then sort of go back and forth. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, well, I mean, that's the thing that we have to remember, and it. it's funny because the big excuse that everyone has for, as you said, grotesque storylines is that uh, Vince Man is big on potty humor. You know, he always has been. I've, I've spoken to people who know the family, and they say he's always been like that. You know, he likes poop. He likes, you know, uh, all the gross jokes and things like that. Um, but what those people fail to realize is that obviously that didn't happen overnight. He's always been like that, and he's always like potty humor. Why is it more prevalent now? It's prevalent now because... He knows, and I guess he's always known, that his audience really wasn't into that, and he couldn't put it on TV even though he enjoyed it. And now, as we said before, free of competition. uh, It's more or less what he wants to see as opposed to what others want to see. I think the problem with with the McMahons, uh, I'm not going to get into nepotism and things like that, because I do find a lot of times that, at least in a situation like this, Vince McMahon did recreate wrestling in the 80s. he, He came in, he took over the company from his father, and he really made it what it was. Uh, the issue that does spring up with Stephanie, and, and to a point, Shane, is that, you know, they, they are just the children of the McMahon family. You know, they're not necessarily, they didn't revolutionize anything. Stephanie really hasn't produced anything on television where I can say, you know, good job, Stephanie you, you know, you deserve the spot that you have. Uh, so there is a proving period that they still have to kind of work out, and they, they haven't proven really much of anything yet. Uh, WWE has had an infatuation. With not being a wrestling company, which is silly when you consider that anybody who doesn't watch the product knows that it's a wrestling company. They want to be a soap opera, they want to be a a TV show about a wrestling company. But while doing that, they forget that you have to follow certain rules within that world. If you're scripting a drama or a comedy, you have to follow the rules within that drama or comedy. If there's a show, like, like, let's say The Office, The show The Office on NBC is about an office. That's fine, but you can't have things happening in that office that aren't consistent with what should happen in an office. And that's what WWE runs into. Like, You can't do a show about a wrestling company, and for a while they were taking the the Cruiserweight Championship, a title that's supposed to be there to give your Cruiserweight something to do on the show. And they had put it on a woman. They put it on a 55-year-old man because they think it's funny. But they're failing to realize that it then cheapens a whole division of your, albeit pretend, you know, storyline-oriented yeah. world. But you're cutting your own legs out from underneath you. Yeah. And, and wwe is been cutting their own legs out all for the sake of trying to be something they're not and something that their fan base doesn't want them to be
1: anyway. Yeah. And, and you speak to them cutting their own legs out from under them. They've left a lot of money on the table to uh, to satisfy personal grudges over the last five five years or so, would yeah, you say?
0: Definitely, definitely. Um Guys like, I mean, and that's, I think, the saddest thing is that uh, WWE a few years ago spent uh, a lot of money to bring in a guy named Bill Goldberg. A lot of fans know him, even those that don't really follow wrestling, because he was big in WCW in yeah. the late 90s. Bill Goldberg and Sting are probably the two most prominent non-WWE created names, and they brought in Goldberg. And even people who didn't like Goldberg were intrigued by the idea because here was a guy and his character really – it was based on just squashing people and killing them and and beating everybody in his way. And the big question was, how is WWE going to make this character work while not killing their whole roster by letting Goldberg beat them? And we got our answer fairly quickly was that they weren't going to let the character work, so it didn't matter anyway. Uh, Bill Goldberg, actually, years before coming to WWE, had a high-profile exchange with Triple H at, a, at an autograph signing where he stood 10 feet away, cursed Hunter out. Uh, Triple H married into the McMahon family. So here's this guy coming in, instant heat, instantly not liked uh, by the powers that be. And there were so many opportunities throughout his feud against Triple H where you watched it, and even if you weren't a Goldberg fan, you said, wow, if he were to win the world title right there, that would be great, and they just left money on the table. They didn't give him the belt, and when they did finally give him the belt, uh, they kind of bogged him down with, with silly and weird storylines that didn't focus on him. All for the sake of revenge, when they probably could have made a, a couple of pennies off of his name, had even marketed right.
1: Yeah, Goldberg's sad case sort of uh, falls in with uh, a big part of your book, and uh, I dub it here in the in the uh, in the notes here as Triple H conspiracy theory. Uh, <laughs> um, so, and there's conspiracies in everything. If you look hard enough, and if you if you if you've been a student of any sport, you've heard different conspiracy theories, but, uh This one's sort of the conspiracy theory du jour, and that's uh, Triple H. He's had quite a history in the last five years on WWE, and most of it makes no sense and only seems to benefit him. And the question always is, is he doing it himself? Is his wife, Stephanie McMahon, he married into the family? Are they so crazy and over-the-top that they're just completely ruining their show to satisfy just this one guy? Um, So speak to that a little bit. What your take is on the Triple H conspiracy theory, because... You do a lot of work towards that in the book.
0: <laughs> well, that's it's one of the reasons why I did it. It's, if you read the book, it almost seems it points like overkill uh, with the amount of things that I, that I list that Triple H has done. And one of the reasons why is that having reviewed the show, I started reviewing Monday Night Raw in, in October of 2002 uh, when I first began. And I watched it every week, and I kept thinking, this guy is just doing these things to these performers where I, I can't understand why why no one's seeing this. You know, it was... It was to the point where you can't even rationalize uh, a good reason why it's being done other than to make him look good. And still you have fans that argue, and wrestling fans, I find that a lot of the time they like to debate. Uh, Even if a subject is more or less cut and dry, they still like to debate and go on both sides. And one of the big things I read all the time was, well, Triple H still helps people, and he still did this, and he still did that. So when I sat down to write the book out, I said well, let's just do this. Let's go from October 2002, uh, to a full year before the guy got married, uh, until the book was due in, which was right around the time that the world title that he apparently was obsessed with left his show to go to the other brand, and let's see how many people he helped, and let's see how his storylines played out. Uh, and it ended up being a type of thing where I probably could have written half the amount that I've written, and it would have been sufficient, and it would have probably gotten people to say, well, it, it's probably true, but – I didn't want anybody, I didn't want any wiggle room. Uh, I wanted that if Triple H does read the book or the McMahons read the book, they can really look at it and say, you know, this is from beginning to end, every single thing that I had observed and where it stood. And unless the guy is just inept and doesn't understand the business and doesn't understand anything about helping anyone else in the business, uh, then it's on purpose. You know, I have a lot of respect for Triple H. He was a great wrestler before he was in the McMahon family. He's always been a top performer. This isn't a case of a guy coming off the street, marrying the boss's daughter, and becoming a world champion. He was the main eventer before he got married. Uh, it was the issue that sprung up. It wasn't that he got title shots or, or got pushed because of being a part of the McMahon family. The issue was that his character eventually devoured the entire show <laughs> because he was a member of the McMahon family. That's the problem.
1: Yeah. Sort of uh, talk a little bit more about this. WWE, they hate uh, wrestling. They hate wrestling in a sort of another weird paradox that, uh, pervades that whole business, uh, they hate professional wrestling, it seems. How pervasive is, uh, that culture of sort of anti-wrestling inside the WWE, and why do you think it even exists? That makes, makes no sense.
0: I think at the end of the day, I think the problem comes with, with the McBands not liking the wrestling business. I think they blame it for a lot of how they're viewed by others. I think, uh... Vincent Man handles himself very peculiar, uh, particularly outside of the business sometimes. When he went on HBO with Bob Costas and he got in his face or when, when he slapped the notes out of the hand of a guy in real sport. I mean, he's done such crazy stuff, uh, publicly. And I think he's kind of convinced himself, especially after the, the demise of the XFL, that a lot of it had to do with the public's perception uh, of his business and the professional wrestling. And although I think it's always kind of been there, where he always kind of felt like he was more than a wrestling promoter and that wrestling promoters were looked down upon, uh, I think after the XFL, he, t- he took it personally. Uh, and he views it as such in that he doesn't want to just be seen as a wrestling promoter because he thinks that might be negative publicity. So they went out, and they, and they hired a lot of people who – don't love the wrestling industry, they're here to to make TV. And I've talked to people in the company who say, you know, I'm not a wrestling guy, I'm a TV guy. Oh, okay. And just like I mentioned in the book, I'm somebody who, you know, I I love the business and even I have a hard time sometimes telling people, you know, what I'm involved in and what I write about. So you can only imagine people who work for WWE who don't love the wrestling industry and what they tell people at the end of the day. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's trying to make themselves happy at the expense of their own product. And Vince has gone out there and he's tried bodybuilding federations. He's sold Ica Pro workout supplements. He's done the XFL CDs, movies, you name it. He's tried to do it. But at the end of the day, many of his fans tune in to see wrestling. Maybe not in-ring wrestling, and maybe not everybody loves headlocks and drop kicks. But people want to see storylines that make them more excited to buy a match later on. In the end, you're selling matches. You're not selling really anything else. TV and everything else is being done uh, to build up your matches, your pay-per-views, and your characters. So when you're you know, focusing a whole show on a segment or a skit that's maybe funny or, or, or dramatic, but it doesn't have anything to do with a character or a feud or a match, uh, it's, as we said before, cutting your own legs out from under you, all because you don't want to admit what you really do for a living.
1: Yeah. Exactly, mm. and you think that goes from top to bottom? There's there's just people in like like you said, just TV guys. So it's not just like the top people hate it. But the other people are like fans and that got into it. There's a lot of it's top to bottom, pretty much. You think?
0: Well, I think that the people who do stand tall and defend the business uh, within the company uh, aren't really treated with the most respect. I mean, Jim Ross totally comes to mind right off the bat. He's somebody who who really does uh, love wrestling, and I think Jim Ross actually inspired a lot of what I do uh, to get involved in wrestling. He used to have a. um, a radio show back in the early 90s. He did it for WCW and then when he went to WWFE, they, they did it for him too. And he once had this, this caller call in and thank him. It was a guy and he was blind and he actually thanked wow. Jim Ross, yeah, for calling the matches the way he does. He says, I feel like I can watch it because of how you describe it. And I remember listening to that thinking, oh, that's so cool. You know, I mean, that's really, that's somebody who loves what they do and they go out there and they, and they describe it and they do their job in a way that, that puts that through to somebody who can't even see the product. Yeah. And, I mean, so Jim Ross has been up and down the UWF, WCW. He's worked everywhere. And he is into wrestling. And, unfortunately, you saw it on television last year. And a lot of times you'll read, you know, comments or whatnot. Um, but people like that, they, they kind of get, uh, I want to say, picked on or, or, or looked down upon within the company because of it. But it's such a backwards mentality. It's a type of place where, even though they're a wrestling company, if you work for them and you love the wrestling, you get mocked and you get ridiculed. Um uh, and it, it's it's just so silly. It's like, you know, IBM, you know, treating people who love computers like crap, and they're off. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's your job. It's your company. You know, you should respect that and be happy that you have them on the payroll,
1: but they don't. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Mm-hmm. It's uh, one of the most frustrating aspects of, of the, that company. The WWE, they went through a pretty uh, significant change uh, about five or six years ago, and that's when they went from a privately owned company to a corporate uh, monster in some ways as a public company publicly-owned company. They took their stock public. Um, how do you think that changed the wrestling business uh, that, that people used to be familiar with? It's certainly gone corporate in some ways.
0: Oh, very much so. I mean, one of the one of the guys who writes for the site and is in the book is uh, Tom Pritchard, who was uh, WWE's head trainer. He was, uh, you know, co-host of uh, Fight This, their Tall and show. He's a former wrestler and all that. Uh, he was a, a big part of WWE, and he was He's one of the most far-removed from corporate America type guys you, you could find. He's not really, he doesn't wear the suit and tie work or anything like that. Uh, and he was definitely a casualty uh, of that crossover. Uh, WWE, again, still in their desire to not be a wrestling company, have taken more of a corporate uh, outlook on the thing. They, they brought in a guy, John Laurinaitis, who's known for making corporate decisions about his employees uh, that are they're almost silly uh, when you consider all the other problems they have going on. Uh, I think the one thing that's changed, at least in my opinion, because I'm not big on numbers and I'm not big on, on, on financials and things like that. That's their deal. Yeah. Um, the big change that I have found is that WWE tends to try to, to find excuses more. Uh, and you see it because Linda McMahon does a conference call with investors yeah. every quarter, and when she does, some of the things that just come out of their mouths are just so funny because you know it's true and you know it's not true, and you watch the way they kind of phrase it and the way they put certain things here and certain things there. Uh, WWE is made a habit. Out of not really taking too big of a loss because they know where to bring money in from other avenues. People stop coming to shows, they're going to sell more DVDs. Yeah. People stop buying DVDs, they're going to run more shows overseas. You know, I mean, so that's, they're good in that sense. They know how to make the, the money balance out at the end of the day, but at the same time, they're also trying to snow a lot of people who maybe don't follow the business all that closely and don't really understand the true answers to a lot of the questions they have during those conference calls.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we're we'll going to be talking about a lot of these problems in the wrestling business, and uh, you can't really uh, not give some of the blame to the wrestlers themselves. Uh, it's sort of a boys' club. There's a lot of hazing. There's a lot of paranoia. Um, and it's even another strange thing that I noticed from reading the book is that there's two guys in there. You talk to a number of wrestlers. There's great quotes in the book. Um And what sort of uh, struck my interest was that you talked to two guys. I won't say, so then you you pick up the book and read it, and then you'll know who I'm talking about. All right. Uh, But you talked to two guys. They weren't in the WWE at the time. They really don't have anything good to say about WWE. But since then, I've seen both of them back on WWE, one in sort of a sporadic capacity. He'll show up every now and again as a legend. Mm -hmm. And the other guy... Uh, pretty much is back on the payroll, was a full-time wrestler, and, and neither one of them had very good things to say about them. Some of them were really biting remarks, and it's sort of—it's uh, interesting that, that they'll leave, they'll be, they'll have all these things to say, but then they'll end up coming back. Is that all, obviously that's sort of part of the, or the WWE owns the wrestling business, so they pay the most and everything. Absolutely. But the wrestlers they have to compromise themselves a lot, and uh, it's a culture of of, uh, like I said, just a boys club. So speak to some of uh, the problems that are caused by the wrestlers themselves and how that does not go unnoticed in the book.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, right, right then and there, the, the, the statement that, that they call themselves the boys, uh, I, th- I think that just, it says it all right there. I think uh, the wrestling industry it has a locker room very similar to, to a football team or, or any sports team because it is sports entertainment. And there is a certain aspect of it that involves sports. And that aspect is that they do physical activity in the ring. Uh, they have to be in somewhat good enough shape that they can fall on their back over and over again each night and not, you know, die. Yeah. Um, so they go out there and they have that, that sports mentality. They're on the road together uh, and they want to haze each other. and That's cool. And, I, and I'm, I'm definitely not anti-hazing. And I try to make this clear and it's in the book too. I've, I've been involved in, in teams and fraternities, and things like that. Um, so I understand the need to, to kind of haze somebody. The, the problem that, that comes up here is that it's not just hazing. It, it's almost this whole recess-like mentality of, you know, you have to put your bag a certain place. You have to shake this guy's hand. You got to shake that guy's hand. Uh, otherwise, they're going to, you know, tie you to a pole or they're going to make you serve drinks on an airplane or something like that. Yeah. And that's all silly and well and good. And there's a lot worse things that, that they do make people do. <laughs> I mean, I've heard worse stories than that. Uh, The issue that that springs up is that these guys are independent contractors. And football teams, baseball teams, I mean, they're all in unions. You know, wrestlers don't have unions. Wrestlers don't have uh, health insurance. Wrestlers don't have pension plans. And while management sits back and allows these guys to kind of play that game with each other of, hey, you didn't shake my hand, and I'm going to kick your ass and that kind of thing, uh, at the end of the day, I mean – they should be working together, not against each other. And if they did work together, it would solve so many problems, you know. Everybody asks about the drug problem in wrestling. Everybody asks about the the health problem in wrestling. And and that could all be solved through a union, you know. Um, The problem that does spring up is that they're almost proud of what they are. They're proud of being the boys, and they're proud of the boys' club mentality. And it seems as though this industry which began in the carnivals and began in the carny days uh, has evolved for the promoters. It's gone from them making, you know, $5 and a step right up to, you know, making billions of dollars in in their company. But for some reason, the performers, not only are they exactly the same position that they were when they were in the carnivals, they're proud of being the exact same. And and I've talked to some of these people and you ask them about unions, they go, oh, if, if we get a union everybody's going to, you know, there's just going to be somebody else to step up. And it's like, well, isn't that the point of every union? Isn't that why you have a union? Because there is that fear, you know? If any organization could turn around and say that and say, you know, well, we're not going to form a, a, a policeman's union because what happens if we go on strike? There's going to be tens of civilians that want to become policemen. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's, that's kind of the point. That's why you do it. And in wrestling, I, I don't know what it's going to take, and I don't know what generation is finally going to turn around and say, I've had enough of how we're treated, I've had enough of the fact that I don't agree with this company, and now I have to work for them, or, or I'm going to starve, or I'm going to be badmouthed on a DVD, or I'm going to, you know, never have my name mentioned again in public. Yes. <laughs> so it, it's depressing in that sense, and, and you feel for a lot of these guys, a lot of the heroes that, that I grew up watching, and that, you know, you probably grew up watching, uh, are, are nowhere even close to where you would have expected them to be when you were, uh, you know, 10 years old.
1: Oh, I know. I know. It's it, it's very sad to see some, where some of these guys end up. Uh-huh. Um, and that sort of goes to uh, something that I've pointed out to a lot of people that they don't that a lot of mainstream people who follow wrestling don't understand is that these guys they may, it sounds like they make a lot of money, but actually they spend a lot of money to do what they do. Uh, they have to pick up a lot of the costs that you wouldn't think that. They do, you know. Mm-hmm. This is a year-round thing. They're spending money out of pocket that comes from their salary, and it's a significant portion. So, uh, you've talked to a lot of wrestlers. How talk a little bit about what how much of that expense they have to pick up, and uh, in general.
0: Well, I mean, the company's usually pretty good with uh, with reimbursing on things like that. I oh, mean, really? There's, there's obviously. I mean, there's expenses that they kind of get factored into everything. Um, I mean, everybody gets, you know, expensed. I mean, they're obviously not giving them tons and tons of money to do things, but you kind of have enough if you you want to stay somewhere and you want to get food. The problem then comes in is a lot of these guys, they they live this superstar lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, And Mick Foley, I think, spoke about this in his book. Foley uh, was notorious for being – I don't know, thrifty, I guess you could say, and saving a lot of his expense money so that, you know, he can go back home to his family. But a lot of these guys, I mean, they're on television. They say, oh, you know, I want to be whatever. So they go out and they buy sunglasses and leather jackets or whatever. And then at the end of the day, the checks stop coming. You know, I mean, it's not – they think it's going to last forever. And when you're in that moment, it kind of seems like it's going to last forever. There's people that you'll watch on TV every week, and then when they're gone, it's like they never existed. And a lot of them are prepared for that. It's a lot like these Hollywood stars, you know. They go out there and they're on television. and They're mega stars. And you know, where you know, where's the money ever going to go? And next thing you know, you're Corey Haim, and you're you know, yeah. 30 and you're doing VH1's uh, Top 50 Child Star Shows. You know. Yeah. And that's that's the issue. And a lot of them too, they developed the the addiction to painkillers. That was just. Uh, it was actually just dealt with on the Surreal Life. I don't know if you, if you watch the show, but yeah. um. Maven was on it, mm-hmm. and Maven was in WWE, and they had a whole episode, not really a whole episode, but a portion dealing with his addiction to painkillers, and this is a guy who's been wrestling for five years, could you imagine these guys who've been doing it for 30 years and, and actually winning matches, <laughs> I'm like yeah. Maven, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's sad the way they go into these, this business wide-eyed with a lot of dreams, and a lot of these guys, uh, actually almost all of them, come out of it very different than when they first got in.
1: That actually segues perfectly, sadly, into the next talking point, which is uh, the death epidemic in professional wrestling. This is uh, just sort of starting to get a little bit of mainstream coverage in the last year or so, and, uh, but it's actually been going on for like five, six, seven, almost a decade now. Uh, A lot of young wrestlers dropping dead. Um, A lot of the people that were superstars back in the day that you just you're shocked and stunned when you find out they died. But if you're a long time wrestling fan, an inside wrestling fan, you're almost you're not so much shocked, but there's a there's a desensitization to the whole thing now at this point. But um, talk a little bit about that. Some people may have heard about this problem. Uh, but other people, this might be news to them. So talk about the, the wrestling death epidemic.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the mortality rate for professional wrestling under the age of uh, I think it's 40 is, is ridiculously high. Uh, well above. I mean, I want to give a percentage out unless I know for sure what it is today. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it, it's high. And it's it's a lot of guys. When you go through Mr. Perfect and Big Bossman and Rick Rude and Miss Elizabeth, I mean, it's, it's like a who's who uh, of when we were kids, you know, coming out there. And, and then they all pass away. I mean, the issue and one of the reasons why it's been hard to get the issue noticed is because I think those of us who do try to make people aware of it, uh, a lot of times we tend to kind of get lost uh, when doing it. I, I think a lot of the things that we use as points cheapen it. And, and one example that I'll give you, and I hear that a lot whenever people are talking about wrestlers who have passed away and they brought it up on, on HBO when they did the story on it, people bring up the Carrey dog who hadn't been wrestling for WWE for about six, seven years at the time of his death and, uh, and died in a car accident. You know, and then people come out there and they say, well, all these wrestlers died in the junkyard dog. And it's like, well, junkyard dog doesn't really count. You know, I mean, just because yeah. a wrestler did die before 40 doesn't mean it's part of the problem. I mean, it is definitely definitely—it's a sad situation and it should be brought up, but it's not been two Man's fault. And that's where he kind of gets the wiggle room yeah. is that when wrestlers die off of his watch, he says, well, they weren't working for me anymore. I can't be blamed for it. blah, blah. blah. I think that, again, uh, I mean, it all goes back to unions. I think if they had unions that had better health care, if they had better health care, better pensions, they wouldn't have to be doing some of the things they were doing to keep their bodies moving uh, after they were done with the ring. I think the issue that really kind of annoys people, and it came up last year, was when Eddie Guerrero passed away, and WWE kind of used it for fodder, for on-air kind of storylines yeah. and scripts. that. That was one of the, probably one of the most deeply offensive things I've ever seen WWE do on so many levels because as somebody who runs a website, I I dealt with emails from readers who were Destroyed, destroyed over, you know, Eddie, Eddie Guerrero dying. A lot of people had never really dealt with death before. They never had anybody that they watched on TV or followed pass away, so it really affected them deeply. And then for the McMahons to come out and, and script promos where Randy Orton says that Eddie Guerrero's in hell, or have uh, Rey Mysterio used Eddie Guerrero's name to become a, a popular star, it's like, well, that's kind of, you know, uh, wrong. Yeah, wrong, disturbing, <laughs> and especially for the fact that he died on their watch. Like, I'm not a wrestling promoter, but if I had a company and one of my employees died on my watch, I would be too embarrassed to mention their name outside of, you know, in a respectable way yeah. for a while. I mean, is there any responsibility on, the, on their heads, even whether or not we blame them or not? Because, I mean, you know, once in a while something will happen in your life that you're not responsible for, but you feel responsible for. Yeah. And you need your friends to say, you know, well, it's not your, your fault. In this case, uh, it's kind of like that with the McMahon family. Like, whether or not you believe they are at fault for the death of Eddie Guerrero, what do they think in their heart? Obviously... It doesn't affect them that much if they're going to make it part of their, their silly little storylines. You're going to go from a, a bikini contest to a segment but you know, Eddie Guerrero who died three months earlier right after. I mean, it's, it's like where's the decorum and where's the, the reverence, you know, the respect for for somebody who worked for you and passed away. And I think it's, it's that arrogance that fuels a lot of the people who, who come down on McMahon for the deaths in wrestling. And I think if if he would accept the situation uh for what it truly is instead of always trying to back out of it and always trying to blame someone else or whatnot and just accept look It's not a hundred percent my fault, but it is real. Uh, it is something that we care about. And even some sort of policy or some sort of statement on it. Uh, I think fans might respect it more. I, I think a lot of, of what the WWE does, they do to get a reaction as opposed to doing what might necessarily be right morally.
1: Yeah. 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 And, and like you said, uh, all that stuff that they did to exploit the death of Eddie Guerrero, that could have been that could have been stopped from the top on down. So you really have to ask yourself, like, uh, you know, why didn't they step in? Maybe, yeah. like, you know, we, this shouldn't be going on. And they didn't. And, you know, draw your own conclusions from that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the tough things, especially about being uh, somebody who reviews the industry, is that you never want to question anything uh, that you don't know 100%. Just because, and for example, the Eddie Guerrero Memorial episode of Raw, I reviewed it, I kept it respectable, I didn't talk, I didn't question anybody's emotions that night, I didn't question anybody's feelings, but there were definite situations where people who, you know, were probably, you know, within the company connected to a certain extent were saying things that didn't really sit well with me. You know, little things that can be misconstrued as as, as dramatic for dramatic purposes, things yeah. that can be misconstrued as, you know, still trying to keep it winky-winky insider wrestling talk while delivering, you know, a pseudo-eulogy for somebody. You know, even Vince McMahon at the beginning of the show, you know, he said, Viva La Raza! And he kind of said it in a way that it was like, well, it was kind of inappropriate. Yeah. Maybe you're a nut. I don't know, Vince. You know, I don't <laughs> know where it comes from. But then, within within a week, you go on WWE Shop Zone where they're selling their, their merchandise and there's Eddie Guerrero with a big signs of his Viva La Savings, you know? And it's like, yeah. where did that come from? You know, it, it, at one point, are, are they so re- far removed from society, and they've been living in that, you know, Titan Tower, WWE bubble so long that they can't see right from wrong in, in a traditional sense? And that's what you have to wonder.
1: Yeah. This is uh, something interesting that I wanted you to speak to, and you cover you covered it in the book a lot, too. Um, and I've noticed it as a longtime fan, um, Back when I first started watching wrestling, which was like '88, um, you couldn't even uh, get a decent wrestling book. Uh, if you were lucky, there was maybe one radio show in your area, and it was on at like four in the morning.
0: <laughs> Mine was yeah, three AM on that fan. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and uh, you know, and it was only an hour long, and it was once a week, and. Um, You know, the wrestling magazines were usually like six weeks behind and still pretending it was real. So Mm -hmm. you just could not really get any information on wrestling. And now in the last 20 years or so since I started watching wrestling, there's become an economy of insidership is uh, how I dubbed it. And we're talking about the newsletters, radio shows like your show on uh, worldwrestlinginsanity.com. Uh, tons of books, obviously your book, World Wrestling Insanity, Uh, shoot tapes that are like this new form of entertainment that has become really big in wrestling. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, the evolution of wrestling and how this economy of insidership has sort of sprung up out of nowhere with the birth of the Internet, obviously, and and then, you know, all this subsequent stuff.
0: Well, it's funny because I feel like... It's been an avenue that could have made money a long time ago, uh, and and one of the only reasons I think it wasn't more prevalent was because of that fear that you know you kind of got to keep kayfabe, as they say in the wrestling industry, you got to keep secret secret, which is basically you know what, what people mean when they say kayfabe. Uh, so they want to they want to keep the secrets within the industry. I remember I was in eighth grade first time I saw a copy of the Wrestling Observer. Uh, this kid had it, and to me, it was like the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like, yeah. You know, I was like, "Wow, I can't believe this guy has all that." Just the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, that he had real names in it, I was like, "Wow, somebody's real names in there." Um, I think what ended up happening was, you know, WWE themselves, back when they were WWF, admitted in the mid '80s that they were fake. Uh, they came out; they said it was scripted. It was choreographed. Vince did. Did it to kind of get around some athletic commission rules and regulations. Yeah, Uh, it was to the point where in the late '90s, when Vince appeared on Real Sports with Bob Costas during one of those crazy Mm -hmm. Vince McMahon HBO interviews, Costas had asked him how much of his audience, what percentage, believe wrestling is still real, and he said, "Uh, maybe two percent." You know, so this is before—I mean, I ever got involved in it. That's why I always find it funny when they say, "Well, the internet's killing wrestling." It's like, well. Vince admitted it in the mid-80s. He admitted it again in the late 90s. I mean, the entire late 90s was built around the fact that wrestling wasn't you know, real, it was supposed to be scripted. Yeah. Uh, I think the Internet had a huge hand in it, and it has really nothing to do with the people on the Internet. It just has to do with the tool that is the Internet. You yeah. know, I mean, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day, and we can't even remember what it was like growing up when you weren't able to say to yourself, you know, who was that actor in that movie, and be able to look it up immediately. Yeah. You know, we take yeah. it for granted now. You know, Encyclopedia Britannica, we had a whole set of encyclopedias in my house that were, you know, doing reports with seven-year-old information, you know, in this yeah. long set. Um, The internet's there for people who like a certain thing. And whereas before you would probably have to talk to somebody, talk to somebody, talk to somebody to find out how to get a copy of the Observer, find out inside news or call a hotline, uh, now anything you ever want to know about anything ever is on the internet. I just found I just found the original strips to the Karate Kid Two online. I said I can't believe this is online. Um, and it's like that with wrestling. I mean, if somebody likes wrestling, they're going to look it up online. If they look it up online, uh, they don't want to read the same stuff that they already know from television. They want to read the stuff that was in the magazines when we were kids. You know, if somebody's reading something online. They want to know as much as they can. Yeah. And, I mean, it's like that with video games. It's like that with movies, TV shows. Uh, the Internet has changed the way not just that we deal with wrestling but the way we deal with, with the world around us. And the McMahons and, and the WWE have still failed to realize that, and they still kind of treat the Internet like maybe it was true in the late 90s and that it was a small fringe part of the the, the business and it really wasn't that important. Uh, the Internet has become as important to people today as television. You know, So to turn around and, and to discredit it, uh, is a silly move, but it also explains why it is where it is right now, and it's because, you know, society moves on, technology moves on, and, and the business needs to move on, and, and that's, I think, what's brought us to where we are now, and, and so many people are trying to, to cash in when they can
1: Yeah, yeah. And then sort of uh, part of uh, that acknowledgment of wrestling as as a show in some ways um, is sort of taken advantage of by WWE in the sense that now that they're the sole company uh, now that they pretty much own wrestling, they now also own wrestling, own wrestling history, mm-hmm. and they have the opportunity to rewrite wrestling history at their at their pleasure, and 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 people will just pretty much believe it now. And since WWE owns all the wrestling tapes, they really do pretty much own at least the visual history of wrestling. Not so much the stories, but they own they own the visual history, so they can tell us how it was when those of us who were around realize it wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how the WWE pretty much owns the history of wrestling.
0: That's crazy. That's the kind of thing that, uh, if I ever were to write a sequel to this book, it was, was something I would definitely, f- you know, focus on a little bit more too. Um, WWE really did something a few years ago that a few people realized the, the severity of it. Um, they got on this kick, and I remember when I was researching the book this first started happening, uh, of doing DVDs about stars who didn't work there anymore. And they were creating the Ultimate Warrior DVD, which was the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, which was, by and large, a slam piece on the Ultimate Warrior. I mean, there were positive things, and WWE tried to say, well, you know, we say nice things or whatever, but for the most part, for somebody who... Really, and I wasn't an Ultimate Warrior fan. I'm still not an Ultimate Warrior fan. Ultimate Warrior is not a likable person. Uh, yeah. You know, he he's got very extreme views on on minorities and on on you know uh, sexuality in the country and things like that. And whatever side you're on in that debate, uh, even people who might agree with his sentiments have to disagree with the way he expresses them because he's very, really unpolitically correct to the point of of trying to be offensive. Um, so what they did was WWE created this DVD about the Warrior and they badmouthed him. And everybody laughs because no one likes Ultimate Warrior, and everyone yeah. turns around, ha, 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 and oh look, they they have Christian on this, on the tape, you know, doing his promos for him, and they're making fun of him and everything like that. And no one realized the president that was setting, and that was McMahon's way of saying, you can either come back with us and work on a DVD with us, or we're gonna release a DVD anyway, and it won't be that good, or we'll just ignore you. And the second person to deal with that situation was Bret Hart. Uh, WWE had actually created a DVD called Screwed, the Bret Hart story. And it was being done uh, at the time that they called Bret. And they said, look, we're going to do this DVD with or without you. You have a choice. We could either call it the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. And you can do your interviews talk about how you feel. Or we'll call it Screwed, the Bret Hart story. And focus the whole thing about the downfall of your career and, you know, how you ended up being, you know, Broke, and you know broke, but uh, out of the business of the stroke. Yeah. Next thing you know, Bret Hart's back on TV, and, and that's been WWE's way of doing business. They did it with uh, Billy Graham, and that's mentioned in the book. Billy Graham, who had a lot of real things to say about Vince McMahon and problems that he had with the McMahon family uh, and steroids and things like that, that he went on Donahue, and he went on a lot of talk shows and talked about it. And now he's at a point in his career where there is no alternative. He can't be in the WCW Hall of Fame, because there is no WCW. He can't be in anybody else's Hall of Fame. His choice is to go to the McMahon Hall of Fame. And part of doing that involves going on WWE television, saying he lied about all of his allegations against Vince McMahon. And Vince McMahon... Just to make sure people knew <laughs> that this was definitely a, a, a revenge thing goes on there, and I, I'll never forget this because that was one of my first times really being introduced to the business uh, outside of televised wrestling was watching The Donahue Show in 1993. And Vince McMahon was on it and Billy Graham was on it. And Billy Graham said, you know, Vince McMahon, you know, knew about the steroids, he knew about the things that were going on. And Vince kind of sat there and didn't say anything. And now here we are, we're, you know, 10, 12 years later, superstar Billy Graham is being inducted into WWE's Hall of Fame. He's on WWE's confidential TV show uh, saying that he lied about what he had said on the Donahue show. And then comes Vince McMahon who says that it took all the strength in the world for him not to jump onto Billy Graham at the Donahue show and beat him up for saying that. And it's like, dude, really, why don't you just go on television and and just, you know, masturbate, you know, for an hour if that's what you really want to do. Because that's really what it comes down to. It. it comes down to really just stroking his own ego mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of television and it's so sad to see a lot of these people who really—they give their bodies and they give their soul to the industry. And even when they're done, they're not done because they're—they're they're not looked at as people. They're looked at as performers in the business. And you got to do what you got to do uh, until the day it's all over. And right now, it's, it's Vince's show. So if you want your legacy to continue, you got to play his game, or, or you're going
1: to be forgotten. Yeah. Um, And and like I pointed out, uh, you have a lot of quotes and and great stuff from the wrestlers, uh, from various wrestlers. How many total do you say? Uh, I forget.
0: On the record, we had 11. Uh, Off the record, there's tons more. A lot of people, uh, so you talked before about WWE having shown up, but it's funny, I I heard from a lot of people, well, I don't want to be on the record because I don't want to piss them off. And these are people who you would never expect to say that, people who don't work for them, people who haven't worked for them in a long time, uh, that I was shocked. Because if I was doing this book, Seven years ago, when there was a WCW and an ECW, they would have been lined up at my door to, to badmouth them. But it, it was hard. People who they who they fired outright. You know, oh, I don't want to I don't want to get on their bad
1: side. Yeah. It's
0: like, well, what are they doing for you? You're fired. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the way it is.
1: Yeah. Um. So yeah, you have a lot of great quotes from wrestlers in the book, and like you said, you talked to a lot off the record. Uh, how did you come into contact with them? And you sort of already talked a little bit about uh, what they were like, because it sounds like there were a lot of people who would say stuff whistleblowers if you will. We have whistleblowers in the conspiracy world uh, all over the place and that's kinda like what they're like. uh these former wrestlers, former WWE wrestlers who want to talk off and on the record. Well, how'd you come into contact with these people in the first place? Because they sound mysterious. I don't know how I'd find Kamala.
0: You know? <laughs> well, it, it's a lot of it involved uh, just trying to, you know, talking to people who talked to people, and someone knew somebody else. And I mean, even now, back then it was funny because I was still writing. When I, when I first started writing the book, I was still writing for the, the original website I wrote for. And I wasn't the webmaster, I was a columnist there. Uh, so I really didn't have too much of a need. To, to talk to too many people in the industry, you know. Like I had some people that I was cool with, and I would get emails from them. But uh, I never liked to report news. I still don't report news on my website. Uh, I'll talk to people. I'll, I'll get some ideas and, and, and work it into what I have to say. But uh, I don't really go out of my way to find sources and things like that. Yeah. So I kind of dealt with a few that I had, and then from there, sort of reaching out and meeting new people and, and and branching out from there. The funny thing about getting all these together was. A lot of people came out of the woodwork to talk to me originally when we first started the book. And then about a month before the, the book was going to be finished, uh, ECW One Night Stand, the first one, started. Mm-hmm. And the McMahon started handing out temporary contracts to lots of people. And suddenly, a lot of these people, and one in particular, I'm not going to say who it is, but he had uh, he had gone out of his way to want to be in my book. He had come over to me, and I, I was at a show uh, actually out here on, on Long Island, and he came over and put his arm around me and goes, when are we going to do your book? And I was like, I'm thinking, I don't really want you in my book, but whatever, and we'll, we'll see what we can do. So, uh, the guy had called me a few times, he talked back and forth, you know, he was going to be in it, he was going to do this, he was going to do that, and then, all of a sudden, his friends started getting the temporary WWE contracts, and he wasn't answering his phone anymore. Yeah. So I finally got him on the phone one day, and he was, and he pretended like he didn't even remember who I was. I said, you know who I am. Oh, <laughs> he man. The, Oh, oh, can you call me back later? I said, yeah, whatever, and I just didn't call back. And it's it's like that. It, it's funny because WWE still has that power, even over people who aren't part of their company and haven't been for a while just because they know in the business that they're in, they know where their bread is buttered. But one of the guys who's actually in the book who, who I have a, a ton of respect for, Elix Skipper, is, is one of the guys on on the – speaks on the record from TNA. Yeah. And Elix doesn't hold back. Elix just really – he has his opinions and he lets it go. And after we had done the interview for the book, I told him, I said, you know, I really appreciate that you did this. And I told him some stories about – some of the people who who try to watch what they said, and people who didn't want to be involved. And, yeah. You know, he said to me, he goes, "I learned a long time ago." He's like, uh, "So like, you can't really censor yourself." He's like, "If you don't work there, so like you get to let it all hang out." He's like, and then you know, people will respect your opinions. You can't really the WWE sees through that, you know, and they yeah. know it. And if they see that you're the type of person who's going to do that, they're going to take advantage of you when they do get you
1: under contract. Exactly. You know, and that's the problem that they run into. Yeah, and it's still that that boys will be boys sort of attitude where uh, they'll they'll bend for the promoter. And not the other way around. Absolutely, totally. Um, so, we're talking about all these problems uh, in in the wrestling industry. If you obviously you can't, you are they're not going to name you new head of WWE. But <laughs> no? if <Yeah>. you, <laughs> last I checked, I don't know, I haven't been online in an hour or so, so it could have broken. If so, congratulations. Um, but if if you uh, if you had the power to change the wrestling business. Um, what would you say, or, or pretty much, what do you think that the the, uh, the areas that need to be changed uh, are?
0: Uh, well, I think they need to grow up. I think that's that's WWE's biggest problem, and I think it's it's the most obvious solution. And I don't know why they haven't figured it out yet. Um, the '80s they were huge with kids. You know, they had the cartoons, they had the kids stuff going on. Then they became stagnant. In the late '90s, they became popular with teens and young adults. And why? Because well, their audience were those children, and they grew up and they become young adults and yeah. teens. So you obviously change your booking and your stories to get them excited. And also you got to look at what was popular at the time. In the 80s, the popular Mr. T was popular and Cindy Lauper and all that bubblegum cheesiness. Yeah. And in the late 90s, it was Jerry Springer and it was, you know, uh, the, you know the New World Order and, and kind of that badass type of mentality of wrestling. And yeah. nowadays, uh, the popular things are shows like 24 and Lost and The Sopranos and, and, and shows that involve following a story and following it to the end and maybe – uh, people who definitely in the days gone by couldn't really follow a storyline that well have learned how to do that. You know, they've learned to watch television shows and follow things that are maybe subtle, uh, a little more subtle than they're used to. And yeah. I think WWE needs to, to realize that, hey, you know, if we got all these kids in the 80s, we caught up with them in the 90s, let's catch up with them again in 2006 and provide a, a form of entertainment that isn't lowbrow and proud of being lowbrow? Maybe something that's a little more respectable, uh, something that involves a little more intelligence to follow characters that are, are relevant. That's another thing too, man. Characters are just not relevant. I mean, I go throughout my day, and I, I guess maybe it's because I've always fallen us and I've always like that. Like, and you run into people in different situations, whether it's a, you know a job or something like that, and you think to yourself that would be a great wrestling character. You know, you can get yeah. like the, the angry, you know, whatever. Uh, but things that, that really definitely relate to real life. But WWE doesn't do that. A lot of their characters are cut right from that, that comic strip type of mentality. And I mean, I had this with the spirit squad, which is a new, uh, a new group that is, I mean, it's popular enough. It's five guys. They play evil cheerleaders. Yeah. Uh, it's a right. I mean, people like it. And I, I, I think that any success that it has is going to be done despite itself. I, I don't get it because I don't see how it's topical. I don't see how there's anything going on right now in the world that is relevant to evil cheerleaders. If they were evil Duke lacrosse players, you know what I mean? Like, if, yeah, if there's yeah. nothing that you can really look at and you could say, well, they got it from that, it's just like, well, where did that come from? And yeah. that, I think, is the problem with living in the bubble and not living in society and not living in a world outside of wrestling where you know what people are into and you know what people are, are, are watching on TV and you know what people are seeing. All you know is what you have. And if that's all you know, uh, you can't provide anything new. And they haven't really provided anything new in a few years. And the difference between this in the late 90s, is that in the late 90s you had people who could come along and talk into Vince McMahon's ear and say to him, well, this is wrong, we should fix it. And he might actually do it. Nowadays, his family are the ones that you're going to have to convince him to go against, and that's not going to happen. So unfortunately, I think we're kind of screwed until uh, TNA, which I guess is the number two promotion, uh, gets their act together and and really starts to, to become
1: second place. Um. And and you touched on sort of a, a concept that's spread now throughout wrestling in the last like year or so, and that's the wrestling bubble. Uh, it seems to be almost like the culture of ha- of hating wrestling within WWE. There also seems to be a culture of uh, of like an insulation. They seem pretty out of touch with what's going on in the world in general. Not like just uh, the thing that just popped into my head when I was gonna when I was thinking when I was saying the question was uh, the terrorist attack. Uh, scenario that played out last summer that caught them a lot of black. Um, that's sort of the most extreme example, but there seems to be a, a culture of uh, insulation within WWE that hurts them That hurts them big time.
0: Well, it's funny, because when you are saying that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking the exact angle. Um, that's actually a case, uh, I mentioned earlier, about how wrestling fans like to debate things, even when it's cut and dry, and with the terrorist angle, and this is what I loved about this, because it proved that point. Uh, when Muhammad Hassan and, and and Sean Daivari uh, came out and they were playing Arab-Americans and, and Hassan is, is Italian to boot, which is even funnier. Um, they were coming out playing terrorists and they, they were terrorist sympathizers or whatever. And all the wrestling fans were debating, oh, well, they're not really terrorists and how do you say they're terrorists? And it's, it's really, it's not like that in blah blah. And it was all this debate going back and forth. And to me it was so silly because it was like, if you watch the show and you couldn't figure out that they were terrorists, you know, and that was their gimmick, then I don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, but then after the issue came up where, they had the bombings in a London subway, and WWE chose to air uh, a storyline, an angle that night on SmackDown that involved uh, almost simulated beheadings uh, of The Undertaker, courtesy of these two terrorists and their friends. The same day that the bombings happened, uh, all of a sudden they got pulled from TV, and the real news, real quote-unquote news uh, channel started to pick up on it. Yeah. All of a sudden, the debate ended because the news channels came out and said, two terrorist characters in WWE, and then no one debated it anymore. I said, oh, well, yeah, I guess. Well, it's like that's the kind of situation, and WWE thrives on that. They thrive on that on that debate amongst people because then they're allowed to get away with things that are so blatant in what they are, you know, and, and they don't get questioned on it. As far as knowing society, uh, I think WWE – Fails to realize that. I mean, and it's, it's always been said that no publicity is bad publicity, and even bad publicity is good publicity. Yes. um And they tend to gravitate towards that mentality, but it, it's not really that true. I think that no publicity is bad publicity for a moment, uh, and then it becomes bad publicity. You know, I mean, bad publicity will definitely get you curiosity views, and you'll have people tune in and say, "I can't believe that I heard what WWE did. I got to see the show and see if that's true." Then they watch it once, but you, those people aren't gonna tune in again. Yeah. You know, they're tuning in to see how bad you really are. They're not gonna say, you know, I tuned in because they shocked me and insulted me, but the show is just so good I have to watch it. <laughs> no one's gonna do that, you know. Yeah. And, yeah.
1: and that's their problem. Yeah. And uh, like you said, they gravitate towards the bad publicity and uh sometimes it may help, but a stream of bad publicity does not help at, does not help at all and that seems to be you know, they may get four bad things they do. And then one good thing that will barely be mentioned, because it's like, dude, you've done so many bad things. Like, you should be visiting the troops. Mm-hmm. Like, you should be, you know, doing good things all the time. Look at all the awful things you're doing constantly.
0: But even that, I mean, it's kind of funny, because sometimes you have to even digest when they do the good things. Like, I mean, for example, and I didn't really say anything. Again, when you when you review the shows, I, I always try to, to keep away from, from cutting down on things where I think their hearts might be in the good, right place.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I mean, last
0: night was Memorial Day. And uh, they they ran this, this clip dedicating the show to the men and women of the armed forces, which is a great sentiment. Um, I know that the McMahons love uh, to spoil the troops, and that's totally cool, and that's their thing. Um, what was funny about it was that they played the, the video clip twice, at the beginning of the 9 o'clock hour and the beginning of the 10 o'clock hour. Mm-hmm. And did you ever see the movie Scrooged with Bill yeah. Murray? Yeah. All right. In the beginning of the movie, they're trying to sell the Christmas Carol uh, special with John Houseman, and there's three commercials, and one of them is ridiculous. Where it was like death on the road, and it was like supposed to like scare people. Like you have to watch the Christmas Story; your life may depend on it. Yeah. And I'm watching the thing for the troops, and I'm watching the beginning. I'm saying, well, this is nice. You know, they're like, oh, the men and women of our. Then all of a sudden, you go to like burn down buildings. They're like, but we tend to forget the value of our freedom. It's like, where's this coming from? Yeah, you know, like what is down around it? And it was long, and it was twice played. And I think that. Even when doing things that are good, sometimes WWE their their personality as a whole of the company, that the company's personality or, or the way they project themselves, yes. is so heavy and so is so heavy-handed that it, it definitely cheapens a lot of the good things they do because they beat you over the head with it. You know, um, even before wrestling was the way it was, and I remember in the early 90s, Vince McMahon got an award for some humanitarian thing, and, and they did 20 oh for Michael Landon, uh, or I think it was Michael Landon. No, it wasn't Michael Landon. I'm not really sure, but it was uh, the beginning of RAW. Half an hour was spent showing Vince McMahon getting the award, and it's like that's a bit of overkill, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and as WWE, they, they they focus very heavily when they do goodwill and charity that a lot of people who sometimes uh, are looking for reasons to, to be haters or, or not be, you know, pro WWE. Yeah. Uh, it even turns them off, you know. And it's like, well, it's not really doing anyone any good if if even your good work is being pushed so hard that people are getting turned off from that, you know?
1: Exactly, yeah. Where do you see uh, the wrestling business going in the next, uh, like, five or ten years? Uh, do you think we're headed toward another boom period for wrestling where it's going to get more mainstream acceptance? Uh, obviously, uh, right now, the the number of wrestling on TV has actually grown considerably in the last couple of years, so it's, it appears that there may be a boom period on the horizon, but what do you think the wrestling landscape is going to be like in the next few years?
0: Uh, I think it's always going to be a a staple of our culture. I think wrestling is is a genre of entertainment that's, you know, uh, older than anything we got here. You know, it's been going on hundreds of years, and television was built on on pro wrestling. So I always think there's always going to be wrestling on television. Um, As far as a boom period, I think the business is going to have to evolve uh, and find its identity. I I think that by continuing to – to kind of run shows, and everybody's doing it, you know, every company's doing it. They're, they're either running shows with no frills, like, uh, you know, some of the smaller promotions run, very generic, no frills companies, or they're all trying to do the, the late 90s WWE uh, formula, uh, which is so cookie-cutter, man. It, it's it's There's one authority figure, there's people who are against the authority figure, there's people who are for the authority figure, and then there's people who don't count, and that's how the show is run, you know. Yes. Uh, TNA does it, WWE does it somebody's going to have to break that mold. Somebody's going to have to find what people are looking for. Personally, um, see, and I don't know if the numbers back this up, so I I don't want to say it either way, but, uh, Barring a lot of what USC does, I think, might be a good idea. Uh, I think USC has a way of promoting their fights where it becomes about the fighters mm-hmm. and it becomes about honor, which I think if you want to get lost into that world of where two men are fighting each other, uh, you have to focus on honor a little bit. It can't all be about voices in their head or you stole my hat or whatever the hell they fight about nowadays. There has to be a certain amount of – I mean, because at the end of the day, you, know, you can create all these scripts and these stories to, to help sell a match, but at the end of the day – Two men fighting is, is about honor, and, and that's, that should be the utmost thing right there. No one wants to lose because, as a guy, you don't want to lose uh, a match when your honor is at stake. And yeah. WWE, especially now, and a lot of the wrestling promotions don't really focus on that with their with their competitors. It's always about, you know, well, you hit me in the head with a guitar. And it's like, well, what about the fact that you know you're a wrestler? Huh. Your job is to win matches, and you don't want somebody to stop you from doing that. That should be what it's about. And I think they really they need to kind of. Get rid of all the all the flair and all the uh, the spectacle uh, a little bit once in a while and, and try to sell a match, no frills, and, and with, with a little bit more uh, more focus on the performers rather than the, the situation surrounding the performers.
1: Yeah. All right, now you talked a little bit about the uh, UFC. That seems to have become, uh, it's sort of filling a void here. Uh, and maybe the next big thing... In a lot of ways, it's a different genre altogether, but it is, in, in a lot of ways, another form of professional wrestling, almost going back to the very early days of professional wrestling. It's gone almost complete, full circle, it seems. Uh, talk a little bit about the Ultimate Fighting and uh, how you think it's changed wrestling, and just in general. You, you, like I said, uh, you're a longtime fan, so you probably remember when UFC was first starting out, and uh, now it's... Uh, I remember when it was first starting out. and I can't believe how big it is now.
0: Absolutely. I, mean, I still remember watching the first one at my friend's house, um, you know, back when it was uh, I me mean, at Gracie we had Kimo, who was awesome back then, Shamrock, and uh, Tank Abbott, who ended up in WCW being a fool, was the yeah. ass-kicker in UFC. Um, the thing with UFC, and if you want to put an example of what separates the Ultimate Fighting Championship from, from WWE and professional wrestling, uh, look at the reality shows that are attached to them. WWE had a show called Tough Enough. Um, and I cover a lot of that in the book where it was on MTV for a while, but one of the things with Tough Enough was it was about learning how to be a professional wrestler. And a lot of what they showed on television had nothing to do with training. It didn't really foster a respect uh, respectability for the business. Yeah. It didn't really show anybody how tough it was. And these are kids that I knew people who were in WWE at the time that The Last Tough Enough was, was happening, and they would call me and say, you know, these kids are running through the parking lot, and they're puking, you know, <laughs> like, they're going crazy. Like, really, they, they put them through hell. And then when you watch TV, WWE had them doing contests where they dressed in drag or where they, you know, tried to play Capture the Flag or something or Tug of War or whatever the hell they did. Yeah. And it really, there was just no respect for it. Uh, It made the guys all seem like goofs. In the the end, all people really had to go on was a popularity contest as to who won and who lost. There wasn't even any real competitions between them to determine who got eliminated. Ultimate Fighting Championship, if you were to watch uh, The Ultimate Fighter, which is on Spike TV, which is probably one of my favorite shows right now uh, just because of the way it's structured, it fosters a respect for UFC. You, you end that show thinking, wow, this is a, a tough sport. These people really, really care about it, and they really want to do it. And I think that, in and of itself, speaks volumes for how UFC views itself and how WWE views itself. WWE has guys who want to become wrestlers and want to prove what they can do, and rather than show that to its audience, They show the audience these guys are goofballs, whereas UFC has the exact same thing, people who care about UFC and want to succeed at it, and they show their audience how much they care and how much they want to succeed at it. It's respect for what your company does, uh, and it kind of all goes back to that with WWE. They don't have respect for what they do. Uh, They want to be something different. Ultimate Fighting Championship wants to be the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and there's never any doubt in anyone's mind about that, You know how they portray themselves and how they portray their shows, and I think that's what really separates the two.
1: And do you think there's a crossover uh, audience, and that they might be taking some of the uh, the old wrestling fans away, or the newer, or you know, uh, grabbing in those young fans that would normally would have liked wrestling back in the day before UFC came along. Now they're sort of more into UFC. I know they're stealing sort of the boxing demographic. But do you think they're they're leeching onto, or sort of draining some of the pro wrestling fans too?
0: I think they could be. I think that uh, a lot of the ways that they do their promoting uh, is very similar to what's always worked in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the top feuds that I remember, uh, in the business. I mean, it always goes back to when, when I was younger and, and people say, well, you know, you're talking about WrestleMania 3. But I mean, WrestleMania 3 was highly successful. And it's the kind of thing that so many people remembered. Uh, Hogan and Andre, I mean, that was based on honor. That was based on, you know, two former friends who, you know, have this issue with each other. Steamboat and Savage. You know, Ricky Steamboat had a, had a ring bell, you know, shoved into his neck and had to be out of wrestling and this guy injured him. Uh, and that's a lot of what USC is doing now that WWE doesn't do anymore. Um, you know, things are, Promoted in a way that fans, uh, professional wrestling might be used to and might have missed from the days when they used to watch it on, uh, you know, CBS or whatnot. A lot of the, uh, the gritty kind of realism, because for the most part, you know, USC is real. So they're able to do that. They're able to promote in a way where their product is real. And before wrestling broke kayfabe uh, or, or started telling secrets about itself, it used to promote the same way because back then. The idea was to convince people it was real, you know? And nowadays, because they admit that it's fake, uh, WWE and, and a lot of the companies tend to forget that they should still be promoting it as if it was real. I mean, the idea at the end of the day isn't to fool people anymore. And it's not, to, it's not to fool you into thinking that the fight between, you know, Big Show and Kane is going to be a real fight. At the end of the day, the, the trick is for you guys to know that it's fake and for the company to still play it straight in a way that you can get lost in that moment and pretend it's real, you know? It's like watching, uh, I said 24 before, but, I mean, if you're going to watch 24 the whole time and keep thinking to yourself over and over again, what's well, keeper Sutherland? It's not really him. You know, it's keeper yeah. Sutherland. Uh, how bad would it be if the writers of 24 actually thought that, too? Well, what's the point in selling Kiefer Sutherland? You know, they know he's Kiefer Sutherland. He was in, you know, uh, a Stir of echoes. They know who he is. You know, what I mean, it's—or, he wasn't even in a of echoes, but—
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I can't even think of a Kiefer Sutherland I can't before. think of one either, man. Um— No, but at
0: the end of the day, it's about really selling your product as as legitimate, even when your audience doesn't know it. And if you're able to do that, uh, you're able to create suspension of disbelief, which involves any time you see a movie, any Superman movie, any comic book that you read, all involves suspension of disbelief, forgetting that what you're reading or what you're watching is fake and thinking that it's real and getting involved in that world. And UFC still promotes like that because it is real. Uh, And WWE and the wrestling companies need to remember that their product, when being written for an audience, should be portrayed as real.
1: Yeah, like it sounds like they're having a hard time getting over that hump of uh, of real fake that always sort of hangs over the, of the wrestling business.
0: Absolutely. It seems so silly to me, too, because it's if for a company that's so obsessed with trying to be different forms of entertainment, it's like, why can't they follow the same rules that other forms of entertainment follow? You know, you can have a scripted show, but you don't continuously reference the fact that it's scripted during the show, you know? And it was in the late 90s and and things like that. It became kind of the big thing of wrestlers to walk out of character. And it was fun for a few weeks because it had never been done before, and it was surprising. Uh, They had a situation where a wrestler named Beaver Cleavage, who had the most ridiculous gimmick in the planet, Uh, walked out on on an interview. And they were like, "Chaz, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? And it was shocking. And he said, wow, I can't believe that guy just walked out on his character. That's pretty cool. Um, But the problem is that it can't be done over and over again. And the reason why it was cool was because it it hadn't been overdone. And then it just reached a point where writers and promoters forgot that their product was supposed to be portrayed as legitimate, even when it wasn't.
1: Yeah. Um, And what has been – have you heard any reaction from within the WWE to the wrestling, to to your book – and um, and outside WWE, you know, wrestlers who might have read it who aren't in WWE.
0: Uh, well, I mean, I've got. It's funny. I have, I actually heard a lot, a lot of feedback before the book even came out from WWE of uh, of a lot of the uh, the people that you would probably expect uh, to not be happy with it weren't happy with it. Um, one of the uh, the top executives at the company. I know that uh, that person's assistant had a lot of interesting things to tell people about it before the book even came out before anybody oh, really? even knew what it was yeah so uh, but since it's come out I've gotten actually a lot of positive feedback and uh, a lot of the things that I've heard from within WWE uh, a lot of people were, were happy with the uh, especially the, the section about John Laurinaitis um and, uh, and and some of the, the theories in there that were within the books. I mean, the, the, the feedback has just been tremendous, both you know, within the industry and outside of it, too. I, I couldn't have asked for a, a better reaction.
1: Yeah, well, I enjoyed it a lot. It's a really cool book, and uh, it's very digestible for a mainstream audience, which I think is great because a lot of wrestling books sort of, uh, you'd have a hard time loaning them to a friend who's not a wrestling fan, but I say this book definitely you can give it to somebody and be like, here, now you can kind of understand what I'm watching all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. That's actually one of the reasons I wanted to write it when I first started writing uh, about wrestling. N- none of my friends, I mean, I have one friend who, who, who watches wrestling, but other than that, most of my friends aren't into the business, uh, don't really get it, you know. I mean, I say in the beginning of the book, they, they name five wrestlers, and then they realize that Rocky Balboa is not a wrestler, <laughs> and there's yeah. no four wrestlers. Um, and, and it gets so frustrating to tell I still have friends that, you know, I'm like, I have a friend of mine who's all about the book, talk to him about it all the time. And I was like, yeah, you know, I start explaining how, you know, well, didn't this happen? And the Vince McMahon did this. And they turns to me and he's like, so it's all fake, right? And I'm like, dude, where are you coming from? Uh, so when I wrote the book, I said, I got to write it in a way that these people who, who still don't know the wrestling is, is legitimately accepted as fake and people who still don't understand the storylines and the and the real versus phony uh, can kind of pick it up and and, and they can get through it. My, my goal here is to is to introduce the world outside the bubble to the world that exists within the bubble and uh, and show them just because it's it's a lowbrow, I guess, form of entertainment, doesn't make the people within it any less uh, deserving of strong careers, doesn't make people in it any less deserving of being treated uh, with respect. And a lot of them aren't. And unfortunately, it's that stigma that the McMans have helped create uh, as far as people not loving the wrestling business that has allowed that to continue. And my goal here was just to kind of open up some new eyes
1: to that. That's great. Um, Tell me about uh, worldwrestlinginsanity.com, the website, also uh, Radio Free Insanity, like I said earlier, that I help you out put it online and stuff. Um, tell the audience here about, about your website and the radio show.
0: Absolutely. When I, when I first started the website, the website is com, and one of the things I wanted to do when I started the website was I didn't want to create a, a wrestling news website. And one of the reasons for that is I think that there's actually too many wrestling news websites. Yeah. I mean, right now we have three major ones, uh, and at times it, it seems like less, you know, just because there really isn't enough news to continue to be repost and repost and repost. Yeah. Uh, it, it's crazy. Like, you'll find, you know, somebody will get released and someone will have a headline, someone else will have a headline. Three days later, someone else has the headline, and someone has a little more news about it. Um, So I didn't want to get involved in that. Plus, I also found that when dealing with a lot of the wrestlers and people like that, they, they tend to be less on guard if they know that I'm not going to report everything that they tell me uh, that they forget to tell me isn't off the record. Yeah. You know, and you run into that. I talked to somebody when I first began writing who had told me a story. He was so sad about uh, about being at a, at a photo shoot and running into a wrestling reporter. And he just simply said, how you doing? And the guy had told him, you know, about uh, something was bothering him, some body part or whatever. And he said the next thing he knew was on the guy's website. And he said, hey, no, man, you know, like, that's not cool. You know, I was just, yeah. just having a conversation. So we started WorldWrestlingInsanity.com. I wanted to create something that was... Kind of closer to an access Hollywood of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh where the the wrestlers are more accessible to the to the readers and because of that we've uh we have Dr. Tom Pritchard, who's one of the columnists on the site. Uh as, as I mentioned earlier, he was yep. a big part of WWE for years. Uh even Dave Wills, the uh, the crying wrestling fan that was made, you know, such an impact with yeah. that video. Uh he's on things like that I like to do. And uh we do the Radio Free insanity. that you have definitely everybody out there, you know, Tim Bunnell definitely hooked it up. Uh so many times it wouldn't be a show if it wasn't for you, man. So I mean I I oh, appreciate that. Don't worry about it. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do with that, too, was get guests consistently uh, on the show and not not interview them in a confrontational way. Uh, if I have an issue with what somebody said, and we actually had a situation, I think when Vince Russo was on, I called him out on something that I didn't agree with, but I don't do it in a way that... You know, that kind of comes off where I have to appear smart by, by calling them out on things. I wanted them to feel comfortable. Yeah. And I wanted them to get their side of the story out. If I agree with that side of the story or not, uh, I definitely let that be known during the show at some point. Um, but I mean, I don't have people on and then yell at them. I don't think yeah. that. Uh, So because of that, it's allowed us to have uh, an eclectic group of guys. Everyone from Jimmy Hart to uh, Christian Cage to Samoa Joe. We have Christy Hemi on this week, who uh, one of the coolest things was after the interview was over with Christy Hemmy this week, uh, the winner of the Roy Diva search. She actually thanked me and so said that was a very nice interview. And I guess she's used to some crazy interviews, you know, where people yeah. ask her terrible, terrible things. So um I like that. I I love the wrestling business and I I think the people who are involved in it give a lot more than they get respect for. I think they give a lot more of their lives and, and their bodies and their you know, and their uh their family life to the fans, and they deserve respect for it. And that's what I try to do, too, on the site. So uh it's more of a lighthearted place to go. Uh You're not going to, you know, things aren't sugar-coated, but at the same time, it, it's presented more in an entertaining manner that I think people can can go to it. And even if you're getting in, first involved in professional wrestling, you don't have to feel overwhelmed. and. Uh, and you'll probably get the gist of it just by looking around.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot like we uh, where sort of uh, – we're very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, you, you cover wrestling and I cover conspiracy theory, but a lot of our stuff is very similar. Um, and we're sort of like the same way. And your radio show, um, obviously I've listened to it a lot. I really enjoyed it. I've listened to some of these other fly-by-night shows and uh, – they're okay, but a lot of times they're more about make, uh, putting over the show, mm-hmm. and the two wacky ha- like co-hosts, and you know, then they have some wacky other guy come in and stuff, and it's always like, I don't know, I don't like that.
0: <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of that. There's, I, I think that what what happened was with wrestling journal was a lot of people try to be like other people, yeah, and because of that, a, a lot of people I think lose who they are. Um, one of the things I did when I first started writing, uh, I, I try to just be very different than anyone else, just be myself, really. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had gone out there and tried to be like, you know, Dave Meltzer or somebody who wasn't me, uh, it it would have shined through. And I I think you can kind of tell when you hear a show or you read somebody's work if if they're trying to – be more or less a character, be, be something other than they're not, and, and that, that hurts them, I think, in the long run.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what I like about the show, too, is uh, it's a lot like my show in a way. Uh, I always tell people when I'm going to have them on the show and then other people ask about it. It's sort of like inside the actor's studio for uh, Conspiracy, and I think your show is a lot like that, too, for wrestling. It's, you sort of get inside the head of the wrestler and, and without you know bringing them on to be like, why did you do that? You know, yeah. Which is cool, because like a lot of times you know, it may be... It may be interesting to somebody who's listening with like, Well, you're really torn into that guy, but it's not really fun sometimes being in a conversation like that. Well, <laughs> you know what, the other thing, too, is that um, I think, yeah, a lot of times people are cab wrestlers on and
0: they're more interested about hearing backstage dirt. And my kind of thing is, like, if you want to hear backstage dirt, there's plenty of outlets for that. Yeah. If I have a guy like, uh, you know, like Devon Dudley on or, uh, you know, Samoa Joe, I'm more interested in, in knowing their philosophy on the business and knowing how... You know, in an industry where there's thousands of people competing for top spots, how did you get that top spot? Exactly. What kind of mentality do you have, and, and what do you think about the philosophy of the business? What do you think works? What do you think doesn't? And, and I mean, that's that's a way of treating them with respect that I think a lot of people want fail to do.
1: So you got the uh, you got WorldWrestlingInsanity.com, and the radio show is weekly, right? Yep. Weekly Fridays at uh, WorldWrestlingInsanity.com. and. From what I hear, uh, World Wrestling Insanity, the book is a rousing success. Everyone is they're, – they're breaking open champagne bottles over at World Wrestling Insanity headquarters. So um, what is next for James' government? What, what's on the radar for you?
0: Uh, I mean, well, I don't know at this point. I mean, it, the success of this book is, it has really taken me by surprise. I mean, I knew it was going to be different than most books. Um, I wasn't prepared for it. We found out uh, it, it's actually the, the highest-selling uh, – Book that ECW Press has had for wrestling ever. I and mean, they've been around for 25 years. And they've put out tons of wrestling books. Totally. Well, one a cool accomplishment. It's amazing. I, I couldn't believe He actually said that uh, when I found out, he said it was it was actually close to being the top selling book they've ever had uh, overall. And oh, I was like, wow. wow. I'm like, that's amazing. Um, so I'm very happy about that. And right now I'm just trying to digest it a little bit and, and let it seep in. Uh, I've always wanted to write, whether it's about wrestling or whatever it happens to be about. I just enjoy doing it. I yeah. uh, enjoy doing creative writing. So I mean, I'm definitely going to. Be doing a lot more work and, and keeping my name out there. I'm not going to go away, whether it's uh, wrestling or, or literary work at all. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of things on the horizon. What those things are, I'm not 100% on just yeah, yet. Yeah, it's really early in the process. Sure. Yeah, but definitely there's going to be more. I, I, I plan on taking this as long as I can. I'm, I'm very excited about it.
1: Nice, and they can read a lot of your stuff at worldwrestlinginsanity.com, your your columns there, mm-hmm. and obviously, like I said, the radio show is Fridays uh, at worldwrestlinginsanity.com, and the book, World Wrestling Insanity, it is about the decline and fall of a family empire. I highly recommend it uh, for the long time, but all of America audio uh, listeners who are interested in getting inside the wrestling business, have a curiosity, want to find out a little bit more about it, don't want to be overwhelmed by this, the information, it's always overwhelming when you first get into something, but this book's great, you can pick it up and read it, and you're not going to be like, I didn't understand a thing, <laughs> you know, you'll you'll totally understand it, and you'll enjoy it a lot, and it's very uh, very humorous at times, and really made me laugh a lot of several times, so it's, it's a great book in that regard as well, and uh, you should be very proud of yourself. As far as wrestling books go, a lot of them come and go, and you're like, uh, but this one's pretty memorable and enjoyable. So you did a great job on the book, James. I thank
0: appreciate you. that, Tim. Thank you so much, man. And thank you very much for being on the show. Not a problem. Thanks, uh, and thanks to all the, thanks to everybody, thanks to uh, you know your listeners out there. And if uh, if anybody out there gets a chance to do pick it up, uh, that hasn't followed wrestling, you know, drop me a line or go to our message board because I'm I'm very interested in the opinions on those who uh, who are the hardcore audience and see what uh, what they think of the book too.
1: Awesome. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big thanks to James Gutman. The book is World Wrestling Insanity. The website, worldwrestlinginsanity.com. Check it out. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of Been All of America Audio. If you are a new listener who found the show because you're a big wrestling fan and wanted to find out more information about James and the book, you know you want to come back for more conspiracy theory, UFO talk, Bigfoot talk, Spear of Destiny, what's that? Find out on Banal of America Audio. Big thanks also this week. Go out to Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenallofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Check out BenallofAmerica.com updated daily with esoteric tomfoolery as only we can. Weekly columns from Leslie and Chiron. Twice a month we hear from R. Lee. I've got tons of stuff going up there constantly, so check out BenallofAmerica.com. It's the place to be in the esoteric world. I want to give a shout out and a plug to Leslie's Ghost Photo Contest going on right now. We're past the submit your photo stage folks. We're at the voting stage. This is where you have to come into play. This is where we all have a voice. It's time to vote for the winner of the Ghost Photo Contest. You're gonna to want to go to ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com Find out information on how to vote. Check out the pictures. Decide on your favorite vote for a winner first place gets Ghost Hunters season 1 DVD collection and Ghost Hunters key ring second place sci-fi channel t-shirt and Ghost Hunters key ring third place sci-fi channel t-shirt those are the prizes it's up to us now to decide who will get the prizes ghost photo contest blogspot.com this contest being brought to you by Ghost Hunters the TV series sci-fi channel the cable channel debris field the blog You know the debris field. It's from BOA's Leslie. She does fantastic work. Check it out. Ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com and vote for a winner. Next week on Banal of America Audio, we have Royce Myers, creator and editor of UFOwatchdog.com, one of the most controversial, beloved, and infamous UFO websites out there. We're talking to Royce about the evolution of the esoteric on the internet, hoaxters, where they come from, why they're doing it. We're talking about the Jonathan Reed hoax case. We're talking about the Alien Autopsy film case. We're talking about the infamous Sean David Morton lawsuit against UFO Watchdog. We're going to get Royce Myers' take on this lawsuit, uh, how it happened, and his thoughts on it. Plus tons more, how he reconciles the often-repeated mantra, there's no money to be made in ufology with what he perceives to be a lot of folks trying to make some money in ufology through nefarious means. He's going to talk about that next week on Banal of America Audio. Six ten six. be there or be square. If you're a long time Banal of America Audio listener and you want to help out the audio series, there's a PayPal button at the audio archive and at BenallofAmerica.com. the index. Click on that, make a donation. If you can afford to, if you have the money and you want to help us out, It costs money to put on a show like this. Phone bills, bandwidth, and just time, just a lot of time goes into a show like this. So if you can afford it and you want to help us out, click the PayPal button, make a donation. We would hugely appreciate it. As I said, Royce Myers next week on Banal of America Audio. We should have two more episodes after that, and then we're calling it a season, folks. That's the big news. We're heading down to our final three. Royce Myers is three. We got two more after that. And then that will be the end of season one of Banall of America audio. We're taking the summer off. We're already hard at work on season two. We'll get more into season two as the weeks and months go by. Royce Myers next week, another guest the week after, and then the season finale in three weeks. Be there, be square at banallofamerica.com. Until next week, folks, this is Tim Benall signing off.